A quick content note here before we begin this episode of What Am I Rolling? This episode's one-shot, Below, is a solo RPG which deals with themes of depression, hopelessness, and loss through metaphor. In the game, the character gets lost in a strange and frightening place with seemingly no way of escape, and there is also mention of an animal who is injured and suffers as a result. This game is not a therapeutic tool, but a way to explore these themes in a safe way. So, if you're not in the right headspace just now to listen, please feel free to stop and come back if or when you're ready. Thanks, and stay safe, my friends. Hello, and welcome to What Am I Rolling? A twice-monthly RPG one-shot podcast, hosted by me, Fiona. This week, I am playing Below, a 10-day solo journaling game by Doug Lewandowski. you play a character who gets lost in an unfamiliar world and attempts to find their way back. As each day passes, the character reflects on what has happened to them and how they plan on getting home. You can find out more information about Below and check out other Doug Lewandowski games on Ichiko. I'll put a link to it on the What Am I Rolling website and in this episode's show notes. below, players will need a journal or something they can sketch in and a writing implement like a pen or a pencil. Each day, the player must read the day's prompts and respond to them as they see fit. There is no right or wrong answers for the prompts and there are no good or bad drawings. In fact, where appropriate, it is strongly encouraged for the player to sketch their answers in their book, but they can also feel free to use words either instead of or in addition to. The player can change any aspect of what they've been asked to fit with what they've included before. They can also ignore or change a question. The point is that the game is a unique experience for them and no one else. At the end of each day, the player must make sure they also complete the return questions to bring them back to themselves in their real life and leave the game behind until they complete the next prompt. One last thing before we begin. Naturally, there are times in this one shot where the players and myself, most of myself, get the rules wrong or forget something plot-wise. Whilst we always endeavour to stick to the rules wherever possible, at the end of the day, we all make mistakes. And what matters most is that everyone enjoys themselves. So, with all that out of the way, let's play Below. We're going to play Below, which is a solo journaling game by Doug Lewandowski, our good friend. I'm going to just talk about the content warnings because it says that right up top. So I'm going to just say that right now for me. Uh, so we've got Below deals with themes of depression, hopelessness, loss through metaphor. In the game, you'll be writing as a character who gets lost in a strange and frightening place. And there is an animal who is injured and suffers. So this game is not a therapeutic tool. Quite the contrary, I think it's possible that people struggling with depression may not want to play with this game. Please use it for its intended purpose, to explore these themes when you're feeling safe. 
at any time, you may stop playing the game, put the game down for any number of days, or skip a day's prompt. Your emotional safety is more important than the game. Uh, it's nice to see that in writing, actually, because you don't really get that with many games. After each day, I've included return questions. These are meant to reorient you to your own life and reconnect you with something positive. You're encouraged to complete these questions either in writing or by thinking about them, to recenter yourself in the real world, which I hope is happier than the world of the game. Oh, me too, Doug. Me too. I'm not going to put those on the recording, because I think those are a little bit too personal. So they're not going to be in the recording. So this might seem a bit overwhelming if it's just coming from a character, but do please know that I am doing the return questions. I'm just not including them in the recording for privacy reasons. I would suggest responding to the prompts as you go, rather than reading an entire day and responding to all of them. But again, the way you experience this game is up to you. It is strongly recommend that you complete only one day each day. If you miss a day, there's no need to feel that you need to rush to catch up. If a day is particularly intense for you and you need to take some time off, take as long as you need. Below is a game about being trapped somewhere, so please take your time to complete the 10 days. Whenever appropriate, it is encouraged for you to sketch your answers in your book. If you don't feel you can capture what you want with images, then feel free to use words, either instead of or in addition to your drawings. Well, I'll definitely be doing that for sure. But remember that this is for you and no one else. Do what feels best for you and feel free to draw poorly. Oh, permission to draw poorly. That's always, that's always a nice thing, isn't it? And that's it in terms of how to play. Okay. Day Zero. Before starting to play below, please answer the following prompts about your character, referred to as you here and throughout the game, with the exception of the return questions. If you're planning to play as yourself or a version of yourself, that's okay. Still answer the following prompts and keep in mind that the closer the character is to you, the more emotional risk you're taking in playing the game. Okay. So, the first question is, what is your, in brackets, character's name? So, let's do this. My character's name. Because normally I would just play as myself. I always do that in these sort of solo games. But I think... For the podcast, I will play a character who is similar to me, but not me, just to protect myself and, you know, no one wants to hear it's me all over, I guess. Um, well, we've done this before, I think, in Twain. I think I'll just do it. I'll just use Catherine Taylor. Those are my middle names. So not quite me, but almost me. So my character's name is Catherine Taylor. If you work... Where do you work? Where does Catherine Taylor work? I mean, obviously, currently, in our current climate, we all work in our houses. <laughs> so I'd like to, for Catherine's sake, as well as my own, I think I'd like to work outside. Ooh, okay. Let's do something. All right, this will be different. Catherine is a gardener, and she works at the Botanical Gardens. No, not the Botanical Gardens. They're not... Are they called that? Kew Gardens is what I'm thinking of in London. So she's a gardener 
sod it, she'll be head gardener at Kew Gardens, because that's working outside. I like that. Okay, the next prompt is, describe yourself in four sentences. Hmm. It's always the hard bit, isn't it? Describing yourself or promoting yourself. I always find that really hard. Catherine is... I think for this game, I want it to be... I think in most games, I always play like a chatty or a lively character who just fills the silences with talk, even if that's appropriate or not. I think Catherine is one of those stoic types who doesn't speak much. She chooses her words carefully, I think. But what she says has gravitas to them and people listen to her as a result. So... Describe yourself in four sentences. So, okay, so the first line I've written is a stoic type of few words, but when she speaks, her words hold authority and a quiet sense of confidence. So that's the first line. That sort of sums her up in a sentence. So let's, let's think about the other things. So let's think of, so that's like her personality. Let's think of a line for her appearance. Again, physical appearance is never never uh, too important, I find, in games, but maybe for this one, let's do one. <laughs> I guess because she's head gardener, she's always wearing her gardening, not uniform <laughs> or outfit, but she wears, you know, stuff to get muddy in, because she's always planting it. She's, I think she's one of those people who doesn't mind getting her hands dirty. Like, there's always a little bit of mud somewhere that she's not managed to wipe off not saying like she's dirty and she's like covered in mud but there's always like a little like maybe be like on the cheek that she's just missed when she just washed her face after work or something and she's like oh and there's always something so second sentence is most often seen in her gardening gear and forever missing that last one or two specks of mud I guess that, that'll do. You don't need to go into too much description of appearance, do you? Okay, third line. Let's... I know I'm thinking, obviously, D&D, because &D, obviously they're like personality, ideal, bond, flaw. Let's think of a bond. So a relationship that I can have or think about. Like, what's my closest relationship as Catherine Taylor? That silence there indicates so much. <laughs> um, I guess... <sighs> She's happy with her own company. Oh man, that would be so sad. She's happy with her own company and gets lost in a place. Um, but let's do that. I can't... I don't really... Well... No, hang on. What about... Let's let, no, let's change this up a bit. Like, yeah, maybe she's happy with her own company, but she has something. Hmm. She has a child. Like a grown-up child from a previous relationship. We will call... I'm trying to think of any gender-neutral names so I don't ascribe um, gender to them. Um, that's, that's not it. We'll go for Imogen. She has a child from a previous relationship called Imogen. Let's make it positive. Okay, so I've got... She likes her own company, but 
she has a grown-up child from a previous relationship, in brackets Imogen, and is in touch with them most days. That's nice. So we have something positive there. So that's three lines I've got so far. Final line. Let's think of a flaw. Ooh, a bit too close for home, I think. But she doesn't ask for help. She doesn't like asking for help. One thing she does, like, she's, you know, worked very hard her whole life to get up to where she is as a job and to, you know, have people listen to her and, like, you know, manage several people. She doesn't ask for help. She knows what to do. Just, just the way it is. It's not, like, a malicious thing or anything like that. So she's just never needed to ask for help. Has always been happy enough to be getting on with it or to work things out. And if she struggles, eventually she works it out. And she's confident that she works it out. But when the time comes when she does need help, she kind of doesn't know how to, so refuses to. Sort of... I guess... Ooh, play it this way. So, other people come to her for problems. Uh, problem solving, sorry, not for problems. To help them out. And she always has an answer, always has something. Like, she'll either listen or... But then she's the one that does that. She's never done it in return. Because she doesn't want to seem weak. Doesn't want to seem like it's not... I don't know. It's... She's the one that solves problems. She's not the one that has problems. So she doesn't know how to ask for help, if that is a thing, I guess. Some people don't know how to ask for help. So yeah, I'll put that down here. So I had to describe myself in four sentences. So I took it to be general sort of like personality type, an idea of appearance, a bond of some sort, and a flaw, because I wanted to make a bit more of a 3D character. So we've got... Catherine Taylor is a stoic type of few words, but when she speaks, her words hold authority and a quiet sense of confidence. Most often you see her in her gardening gear and is forever missing that one or two last specks of mud on her face after she's washed. Likes her own company, but she does have a grown-up child from a former relationship, in brackets Imogen, um, who she talks with most days. She is the person that people come to to help with their problems, not the other way around. She secretly doesn't really know how to ask for help, but it's never been a problem. Now, I will say, I didn't look at the next prompt, I'm working through them individually, and then... <laughs> the next prompt is, who recently tried to help you? How did you push them away? Amazing. <laughs> I actually, actually didn't see that, so... Well... I have introduced Imogen now, so it'd be silly of me not to use them. Um, Imogen, I think... I'm going to take it as help is in quotation marks here. So, who recently tried to help you? I think that the relationship Catherine had with the partner that sort of broke down, but they have Imogen together, is civil. Not necessarily overly friendly, but, you know, it happened a long time ago. And they've both individually got on with their lives. I think Imogen is trying to get them back together in some sense. Not necessarily like, oh, you know, we should talk more. Like, Catherine doesn't talk to her partner, or her ex-partner, sorry, anymore. 
but she just gets on, you know, she works hard, doesn't need anyone right now. She's happy doing what she is. I think Imogen tried to set up, like, hey, we should all meet up for a family reunion of some sort, like a, a family lunch. Um, we can come to Kew Gardens, you can show us a tour and stuff. So I guess what I'm trying to say, try to recently help me, but I think it was more for Imogen's own needs, if you see what I mean. Like, Imogen feels like to restore balance in some way, to restore love lost, I guess. Like, you know, I, f I feel like Catherine and her partner, or ex-partner, I keep having to say that, you know, had a falling out, but they're amicable and civil, but they don't see eye to eye. And they like it like that. Whereas Imogen feels like they have to go the extra mile to reconcile. So I think Imogen recently tried to help us by setting up like a family meal together so we could talk about things and, you know, get back to... or, or to regularly meet up, I guess, and be civil to each other. Okay, so Imogen tried to set up a family dinner slash tour of Q to try and reconcile past differences about stuff between Catherine, myself, and my ex-partner. How did I push them away? I think this has been going on for some time. Like, every time I speak to them, maybe it takes a few weeks, you know, between... And Imogen would be like, oh, you know, I was talking to, you know, and then we... We thought we could do this. And it gets to a point where I think I avoid it quite a bit. Till I eventually go, Imogen, stop it. I have no interest in it. You know, I'm happy that you live with them. I'm happy that you are who you are. And I'm happy that they're living their own lives. I want to live my life in peace. I think I confront Imogen on the phone about it. And we have a massive argument. Even though I, well, I feel I'm calm, I think Imogen gets very upset because she's trying to help me and I'm like, I don't need help because there's nothing to help. And it just ends with me hanging up. And I've not spoken to Imogen for a few days as a result. Okay, so how did I push them away? Avoided the topic and then argued on the phone ended the call by saying there's nothing to help in ooh ooh okay ended the call by saying there's nothing to help Imogen stop finding trouble to fix ended the call and haven't spoken to Imogen since ooh okay where do you live? <laughs> that's the next prompt is where do you live? I guess I mean London, a London area, presumably. Probably on, um, probably on the outskirts. I'm just trying to think where Kew is. This is quite bad if I don't know where Kew Gardens is in retrospect to the rest of London. I think it's on the west side. I've only been to Kew Gardens once and it was a long time ago, so I can't remember which tube stop it is, but I'm going to say where Catherine lives, she's going to live at the end of the line nearest to Kew Gardens hang on why don't I check my phone and work it out let's get City Mapper up get me to Kew Gardens so it turns out Kew Gardens is an actual stop I didn't know that so whoops oh it's right on the outskirts isn't it 
Okay. Ah, so it's district and overground. Okay. So Kew Gardens, it turns out, is in the southwest. It's on the district and the overground. And close to it, we've got Richmond and Gunnersbury. Hmm. I mean, I would like to say I lived in Richmond because it's quite nice there. So let's say I live in Richmond, so I'm one stop away from Kew Gardens. And I have a lovely little flat that overlooks the river above a pub. Because that's what happened the one time I went to Richmond. I went to a pub near a river. So that's nice. Okay, so where do I live? I live in a flat above the pub, The Anchor, in Richmond, which is one stop away from Kew Gardens. Easy enough. Right, final prompt for day zero. Where are the woods that you're headed to? Uh, for me, where are the woods that I headed to? Um, well, I mean, I've said I work in Kew Gardens, so it'd be silly. Let's do that. Okay, so there is a brand new... Well, not brand new, but there's been an, an exhibition we've been renovating in Kew Gardens. And we're creating a bit more a forest-type area around the, sort of the back of it. Oh, no, that's true. There is a part in Kew Gardens where you can go up into the trees and look around. That's really nice. Again, one time I went. So yeah, it's that bit of Kew Gardens. It is a... It is the tree forest that serves the sort of up in the trees exhibit in Kew Gardens. That's where I'm heading to to see how the renovation work is going. Great. So, where are the woods you are headed to? So the woods are in Kew Gardens. It's the treetop forest exhibit, which has been a part of Kew Gardens for many, many years. And I'm going there to check on the renovation work we've had with the the balconies and the sort of the platforms we've had install to make sure that they're up to standard and the renovation's going well. Day one. When you were younger and happier, you often spent hours in these woods, sitting quietly and drawing. Over time, you did it less and less. First homework, then the stress of a new job, then you just didn't. You were good at drawing once, never great, but good. And it brought you so much joy. Joy is hard for you to come by these days. What has made joy hard for you these days? What does the weight of the shorter and shorter days feel like in your body? Hmm. I guess... Again, playing a character that's not me, but very similar to me. These last few years have been quite hard. I think, at Kew Gardens. We still get lots of visitors. We still get lots of tourists and people coming. But the money's not there. Our budgets have been cut quite a bit. Um, we are providing 
things on a shoestring, essentially. Because people, well, up until recently, didn't see the point of open spaces. Places just that you can go walk about and lose your, you know, lose yourself in your thoughts. Because up until recently, people could do that whenever they wanted. And being suddenly denied that opportunity, they... Yeah, it's interesting to see Kew Gardens without any people in it. It's always busy, like people coming and going and stuff, but then, well, with the restrictions, people couldn't come. It's almost like having, like, an oasis in the middle of a concrete desert. Like, there's just nobody around, and there wasn't anyone around for months and months. And with Christmas and with the New Year's and with all these holidays being cancelled for many people. There seem to be, through all these sort of circumstances, these factors, people who, I don't know, it's that time of year where you're made to be jolly, you're made to have joy because, you know, if you don't, if you don't feel it, then something's wrong. How can you not feel festive around Christmas or how can you not feel excited for the new year and over the years I just don't feel that anymore nothing changes if there is change it's so gradual I mean obviously in the last year or two it's been quite a sudden change it's hard to find joy when a sudden change happens and there's nothing you can do about it there's nothing you can change. And you sort of sit there and you think, kind of, what is the point? One person can't change things. Lots of people can. And there's that feeling of just being the odd one out and not with the group, I guess. So a whole range of things, really, why... It's made joy hard to find these days. A combination of factors, you know, politics, how the world is, the feeling of being left behind and not understanding why or how, I guess. What does the weight of the shorter and shorter days feel like in your body? I struggle with time. I forget myself and some days I wonder, you know, all time sort of merges into one. Days sometimes go really, really quickly and then one afternoon can stretch forever. And it's just... I have to keep making notes of things, like to-do lists, keep myself structured in the day. Today I'm doing this, I'm going to the greenhouses, I'm going to go talk to the manager of the whatever exhibit, you know, and just have them all noted down so that I do have something to anchor me, to guide me. There is a slight feeling of being out of place, missing something, but I don't think that's necessarily to do with what's going on. Maybe that's just, it's part of it, perhaps, but also just a thing of getting older. Realising that, you know, the supposed best years are behind you. And you're trying to make the most of what you have. 
but the media and other things tell you that it's not. So it makes the days feel shorter and I feel tired. I feel like I haven't rested properly. There's no day I wake up when I feel here and complete. You could say that maybe the to-do lists don't help. You know, get up, I have all this stuff to do today, and then the slight everyday worries and anxieties come about and hurt that. I can't remember a day when I just didn't do anything. I wonder if secretly it's because if I don't do anything for a day or two, I worry about purpose. What is the point? What will I do? That unknown fear of doing nothing and being left alone with your own thoughts. Then, on the shortest day of the year, you're inspired. After today, each day will get brighter and brighter, and you just know things will be better. You feel it. Bundled up in your warmest clothes, you spend the precious hours of sunlight sketching a forest you once loved. What is one of the sketches you're most proud of? So, it sort of says that I used to spend hours in these woods, so I, again, looking at it, I think I always used to come to Kew Gardens as a kid. Again, love being outside. The stereotypical ill-gotten trope like, oh, she's a tomboy, better let her go outside. And just being able to explore these woods and just being able to roam free, run about, maybe climb trees I shouldn't have climbed. One of my favourite sketches, though, I used to sketch the leaves. You know, you pick up a leaf and then you'd redraw it. Um, There was one time I sketched like a whole forest floor. Like the trees, the trees are what they are, you know. Once you've seen a tree trunk, you've seen them all really, right? And I've drawn those. I drew a whole forest floor with the tree trunks reaching up past the top of the page. Each individual leaf, I think I tried to make it so different. And that idea of the sea of well, I guess rotting leaves, you could say, but the sea, I try to make it of colour, of reds, of greens, of browns, like it's churning away on the floor, deep, like coming up past your ankles, all the way up past, you know, towards your shins. Another drawing I did, a more in-detail drawing, was the bark of an elm tree, seeing the, you know, the so the texture and the detail around it, like an old hand with the cracks and the crevices reaching up again throughout the paper, creasing and detailing lives, lives that I would never have known. A whole world lived just by standing there in the quiet, in the solitude. So, yeah, those are the two sketches I think I'm most proud of. This is a sea of fallen leaves on the forest floor and the in-detailed bark sketch I did of an elm tree. 
But nothing about it feels right. You don't connect with anything here now. This place isn't yours anymore. Near the end of the day, you find a cave. You don't remember being there. It fascinates you. In fact, it is the only thing that has fascinated you all day. Before going in to explore it, you decide to draw the entrance to the cave. What is oddly familiar about it? What disturbs you? I think going back to the place where I was drawing the forest floor, it feels changed in the way that, you know, again, thanks to what's happening, there actually are a lot more people around other members of staff one or two visitors that have been allowed in today uh, for walking purposes it's the last day before well what we think will be a lockdown of some sort maybe tier 5, who knows at this rate so people are getting the last eking of joy here and whilst it's familiar I still feel out of sorts with it. I notice that gap, so I keep walking and I get to the place where I did draw that forest floor and I see it just out of the corner of my eye, this hovel. It looks it looks like it's been built there. It's not natural. Like the entrance to something, you can see all the rocks that have been piled up around to make almost like an igloo shape. Definitely wasn't here before, but it's been so long since I've actually been deep within these woods. I guess I'm I'm a bit cross in a way because clearly some kids have disturbed the landscape and, and built it, and no one's looked at it since. It looks abandoned. The thing that's familiar about it though, when I get closer, on the archway of the entrance, it's small, maybe about four feet high. The moss, the way it sort of hangs to the stonework, maybe it's been there some time. The way it makes the texture looks like cracks and crevices. Reminding me of sort of bark skin in a weird way. Sort of a, a skin of green covering sizable portion of it. Clearly it's been quite damp here. But there's a moment where I feel of it. I put my hand on it and feel the the earthy, damp green beneath my fingers. And I just feel that cold, that wet. It reminds me of so many days I'd come back covered in mud, exhilarated, that I'd had an adventure. What disturbs me? When I look into the cave, it is a void. I can't see the end to it. It's almost like the blackest black, all the sunlight seems to be eaten away, and I know it's getting late anyway. It's... I feel a shiver. 
nothing there. A void. It's... Something's not right about it. Day two. With your head pounding and your body throbbing, you awaken at the bottom of a steep embankment of loose rocks. As you stand, a wave of dizziness washes over you, but it passes. Your ankle is tender, but you're able to walk. Unable to remember exactly how you got there, you know the first thing to do is to find out how to get out. The slope of rocks is steep, and as you try to scramble up it, rocks shift and slide. You'll have to find another way out. How does it feel not to know how to leave? <sighs> well, this is a predicament. <laughs> it's like a slow but gradual sort of clawing of despair. Usually I can handle this sort of thing, I can use my wits to get out, but the body is a little bit different. You know, I'm very good with my hands. There's a slight grow of panic. My ankle hurts, but it's okay. It's not badly twisted. Oh, my head hurts too. I think I would try scrambling like a spider in a bathtub, just trying to get at all sides, like, quick, 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 stop, take a breather, try again. And each time I do it, it gets worse, and worse, and worse, and worse. Until eventually I just go, <sighs> I just give up. Save my strength. There's, there must be another way out. I guess I'm constantly trying to think, no, 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 there must be another way, there must be another way. And because it takes time, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes of me trying to think of anything and not able to come up with anything I there's a low sea of panic that starts to rise maybe I can't leave maybe maybe I can't leave maybe I can't leave maybe I can't leave rising all the way up and I'm desperately trying to push those intrusive thoughts away trying trying not to drown there must be a way out. Of course there's a way out. There must be a way out, you know. Back and forth between these two different, almost tides of thought, really. How does it feel to not know how to leave? It feels terrible. A rising sense of dread, but I keep pushing it back. Because I can do this. There's no need to panic. I can get out of this. Your eyes adjust to the darkness and you realise you're back outside. As your disorientation fades, you see a small stream running from the back of the loose rocks and away. Following the stream will at least get you somewhere and keep you from losing your way. Who taught you this trick? What else did you learn from them? Who taught me this trick? 
it would have been my partner, or ex-partner, who we've not named yet, but we'll call them Abigail. Abigail was also described as a bit of a tomboy herself. She was really into wilderness survival, etc. Read all the um, Bear Grylls books and watched the shows and stuff. Really loved outdoor camping, particular wild camping. She was always very good at those sort of things. And when we were together, you know, we spend the odd weekend or two doing nature walks, looking at wildlife and plant life. She was a keen photographer, wanted to take pictures of all the fungi and all the sort of plants that grew in unexpected places. Catalogue them, I guess, but understand them uh, in a way that I could never do. It was fascinating. But she always said about water that where it runs to, it will run to something bigger. And there's always people along the river or people along streams. There's always a bridge. There's always a waypoint. Because that's where civilization sort of meets up. You know, we can't live without fresh running water. She also just taught me to be resourceful, I guess. Just to take a moment to see what you have and put it together. She was always the more optimistic out of the two of us. She was very good at looking at what she had and making the best of it. If a picnic we were planning to have uh, with Imogen when they were younger was suddenly called off by rain, Abigail would just turn it around and we'd have it in our house. We'd have it as sort of a blanket fort, an indoor picnic. She was very good at turning ideas into reality and making the most of the situation. It rubbed off on me a little bit, you know, working in Kew Gardens, making the most of situations there. But it's it's hard sometimes because not everything can be turned round into something better. Sometimes things just stay the the way they are. Following the stream you consider the light you're travelling by. The darkness here is nearly complete. The clouds obscure the moon so entirely that you're not even sure where the moon is. What does the stream itself look like? How does the reflection of the clouds on the water haunt you? It's the shortest day of the year, or was the shortest day of the year. So... That indicates to me, if we're in Kew Gardens, that it's near winter time. And so a lot of leaves have fallen on the trees. So the stream itself is just has so many dead leaves sort of in it. It's just sort of sunken to the bottom, slowly, lazily flowing downstream. It's no bigger than a couple of feet across put my hand in it feeling the cold chilly water run through my fingers maybe about a foot two feet deep it's not not much my hands disturb some of the leaves and the mud that comes up from the bottom 
I take my hand away, shaking it. It's, yeah, I mean, it's natural. It's cold. It's running quite slowly and steadily. So that's good. That gives me some confidence in it. As the darkness approaches and the clouds obscuring the moonlight, I use my phone as a torch so I don't necessarily accidentally misstep and go into the stream. The light plays off the water and the shadows and the clouds above. I keep thinking they form figures. Something that's following me. Getting used to the dark, it's, uh, it's scary. Again, that feeling of rising dread and I'm pushing that down and yet I keep seeing things in the in the dark having a look down and seeing another shadow behind me as I'm walking when I look up it's just the placement of the clouds the light dashing off the little stream the flowing whirls and spills of the water it haunts me in the sense of I know that I'm alone, but am I alone? That's silly. I know that I'm alone. I mean, realistically, I do have my phone, so I could call for help, but when I go to, there's no signal. Never is in this part of Kew Gardens. But I feel like I'm not alone. There is something else here, perhaps, that's following me. But I'm pushing it away because I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't want to be alone. I need to get back. I guess ultimately, I just, like I said before, I don't want to be alone for too long with my own thoughts. And maybe that's what it symbolizes, the incoming intrusion of thoughts I don't want to have or, or discuss. Day three. You continue along the stream for hours, the darkness deepening as you go. Your eyes now fully adjusted to the darkness, you're able to examine the trees and other plants. How are they different from what you expect? What about them makes you sure that the light is never complete where you are now? There's... There's a lot more fungus on the trees. Like, as you pass each tree, the bark, slowly but surely, it is sort of covered like a rash with very, very tiny, tiny little fungi just spread all over its bark. And it's weird, like, fungus and fungi in general, you either have two types, right? You either have bright colours, so you think of like toadstools that have reds, or 
you have ones that are it's just like that creamy beige to brownish sort of colours as well I'm sure there are other colours because obviously I am the head gardener of Kew Gardens but <sighs> the fungus is on everything though like it's it's on plants like there'll be flowers and then there'll be more of this little tiny tiny little fungi like you know what it looks like it looks like bubbles weird sort of like bubbly texture over leaves over bark over twigs it's a bit like the beginnings of hair ice you know they talked about that recently in the news about freezing cold temperatures when it's sort of this, the frost lands on these particular types of branches the fungus sort of mingles in with the moisture and it grows so like these hair-like hair-like strengths that's what it looks like it looks like the beginnings of that so it's sort of bubbling over in a couple of strands here and there like wayward hair and the way it sort of covers the fauna it looks like well a wave in a way like it progressively gets bigger and bigger and bigger rising up till I can't see where it ends like a tidal wave washing itself away through this forest and it's a uh, and it's all different colors that's what's striking about it it goes through like a, a spectrum of summits like slowly but surely it goes from the blackest black all the way to grey to violet to brown to orange to red to blue to yellow to white all encompassing but it's hard to tell I guess because what makes this sort of fauna what about this sort of fauna makes me sure but the light is never complete it blocks it out there gets to a point where I'm walking and this fungus seems to you know when you see those pictures along the road and you have the trees on each side of the road and their branches sort of start to intertwine so it looks like an arch that goes on and on and on as I'm walking down the stream, the trees on each side of the stream, their branches start to connect and intertwine. And there seems to be more and more and more of these trees. To the point where I can't can't see any light. It it can't get through because of this canopy, this sort of mixture of leaves and, and fungus. Only little bits and pieces start to come through, like little shafts of light. It's so strange. I've never seen anything like this before. You continue along, following the stream, but it gets continually smaller and smaller until, eventually, it dead ends into a small swamp filled with decaying plants. You explore the swamp. How large is it? What is the state of decay of most of the plants here? What do they look like? I'm getting real um, Stephen King, the girl who loved Tom Gordon vibes. Because <laughs> there's that scene, I think, where she's 
you know, lost in one of the national parks, uh, spoilers, and is listening to the radio and stuff, but she gets to a swamp and it's just... And it's just everywhere. Like, it says a small swamp, right, in the prompt, but actually, when I get to the stream and I look and I realise that I can't see the end of the swamp. I'm already in it. The marshy water has already seeped into my shoes. My feet are already wet. Maybe it is small, but I can't see its end, its natural end. I try and walk around the outskirts of it, but every time I put my foot down, I more water appears, and I realise I must have gone in about five feet. I obviously try and stick to the outers if I can. Maybe, maybe there's another stream on the other side, perhaps, if I keep following around the edges. The plants here... Looking at the fungus and the dead leaves and stuff mixed into the water, it feels like a soup, like a stew. And the longer I'm here trying to find how to bypass the swamp, the sludgier it is. Like, I can almost feel like the mud and the dirt seeping into my clothing and onto my skin. I think I realise now that most of the plants here are dead. Like, completely dead. Actually, looking at the trees, that's probably why they're covered. Completely covered in fungi. Everything here is dead. That's why the fungus has been allowed to, to grow so exponentially. Everywhere I look is a carpet of this stuff and it's all encompassing and now that I listen very very closely the only sounds I can hear is the sloshing of water as I move and the sound of my own breath there's no wildlife no insects complete silence I stop by a tree to look at it. And to just, like, you know, make sure it is what I what I think it is. There's a moment where I go to brush my hand against the bark to see if I can get rid of the fungus so I can see the tree, because there's something about it. I need to see what it's like underneath, but I stop. I don't know anything about this fungus. I don't want to disturb it, and I don't want it to hurt me. Which seems irrational. Why would it want to hurt me? Imagine bubble wrap, warped, coloured, gone completely wrong. The texture of this tree, which goes and grows all the way up to the highest points where I've stopped to rest. It looks like its whole skin has bubbled and boiled, warped out of its natural shape, thin, and grasping out of the water like like an arm there's no lower branches or anything like that they're all sort of higher up but they're spread 
sparse, like an outreaching hand to the sky, still covered with little bumps and little bits of colour of fungi everywhere. Because you've been walking for many hours, you decide to find a dry spot and rest for a bit. What does the place that you decide to rest look like? Even though you haven't seen a living creature since you fell, what makes you worry that something might sneak up on you? I eventually find a place that is free of water. The ground feels more solid beneath my feet. The trees are a little bit sparser here, so I can squeeze through, but it's, it's tight. It's less than a foot between trees, and even less with the fungus growing quite far out. Looking at the fungus now, it's not like how you would think of a typical fungus. Some of the spores, I guess, or the, the top bits of the fungus. Obviously, as head gardener at Kew Gardens, I would know the technical terms, but it's slipping my mind currently. I'm, you know, a bit panicked. They go from closed caps to sort of very open, widespread, to the point where you can see all the little little gills underneath and the texture there I managed to find the space between a couple of trees not much wider than like maybe five feet so enough to curl up in I guess and yeah the ground is solid I pull my coat slightly closer there isn't much light here less light than before so I think it must be the day must be ending. I can see my breath starting to fog in front of me. I try not to worry about it. Again, no sight or sound of any local wildlife. Usually you'd hear birds, even insects when you're this close to water, but nothing. Just the sound and the sight of my own breath, freezing in the cold air. I think the reason I worry that something might come and sneak up on me is because, well, we've all seen those horror films. The person is alone, about to fall to sleep, and then wham, the killer gets them. But really, I think frankly it'd be a relief, would it not? I've been on my own for hours and I can really feel it. And even to see another creature would at least change something. Change my emotion to flight or fight. One of relief, maybe? So that that I'm not alone. Maybe, you know, I start thinking maybe if it's someone's dog, then they can at least come rescue me and I can laugh about this later. Just anything to change the sound, the silence. Because otherwise it's just me. I am the only change and I'm just here with my thoughts. And nobody... Nobody wants that. Nevertheless, sleep eventually overtakes you. 
Day four. You awaken to what you think is a screech, but when you bolt upright, there's nothing there that you can see. The darkness is still the same, and you wonder if daylight ever reaches this place. It must, or you would not have slept for that long. It certainly doesn't feel like you did. Then you hear the screech again, and you follow it. Every 15 seconds, like the call of a bird... You hear this scream. You follow it through the dying and decaying underbrush for a few minutes, until you find the source, a strange winged animal perched on the leafless limbs of a tree. What two animals you know does it seem to most resemble? What is different about it from either of these animals you know? So at first I mistake it for a bird of prey, seeing... uh, it's big enough for it, maybe like a falcon or a or a hawk. Yeah, more like a hawk in its size. But it looks skinless, like a sphinx cat. No fur, no feathers. Like a pure mottled skin colour. Going from all the way from its beak all the way to its talons. Its wings... They're a bit like bat wings in a way, you know, leathery. Have the bone to um, hold out the span of the wing. It's kind of free animals there. <laughs> but yeah, thinking about it, it's like as big as a hawk. With the, it's the skin complexion of a sphinx cat. And the wings, they look bat-like, but what makes them different from either of these animals is that the wings the the skin between the bone structure isn't there there's no webbing it's just bone like covered in skin like if you imagine like fish bones so when it flaps and screeches again and like the full wingspan's like maybe two feet across I don't know how it flies I don't think it can fly, I just... It's horrible. And along with that, the screech it makes doesn't sound like a hawk or the call of a cat. It sounds like nails on a chalkboard at such a pace that it just right down and sends a shiver down my spine. The creature pays you no mind. Almost like... You aren't even there. Partially delirious from the lack of sleep, you stagger back to where you were resting and survey the surroundings in the half-darkness. You find resources to make a makeshift shelter, remembering your days of camping when you were younger, but so much of what you remembered from then has escaped you, that you're disappointed in your efforts. What disappoints you about your shelter? I think 
thinking back to that nostalgia, knowing that when I was younger, when I was a kid, I could make shelters like that, you know, I could make them out of anything. And I think they'd look great. And, you know, you have that image in your head about how they look, that your own secret base. They would have rooms, they would have like an underground bunker, a planning room, a secret hideout, all that sort of thing. Looking at this thing, it's barely, barely put together. Small, very small. I'd have to crawl inside and just hope it doesn't collapse on me. Made out of bits of fallen limbs that I've found. I try and get the limbs that aren't covered in uh, fungus and fungi. Careful not to touch it. And standing back looking at it, I'm... sad. I wish I was better at this. I wish that... (sighs) What happened, you know? I guess it's that sad realisation of... This time passing. Things I used to love ruled my world. The most amazing things in the world, like going outside, running about, not caring. And then you grow up and living puts all this anxiety and and life pressures on you. To a kid, this probably looks amazing. To me, it looks like shit. And I miss that. I miss being awe-inspired by the world around me and not judging it with a critical eye. It will do for now. Yeah, it just makes me sad. The periodic scream of the animal becomes almost soothing. It's your only companion, after all. When every movement feels like dragging... When every movement feels like dragging your bone-weary limbs through molluscs, you decide that your shelter will have to be good enough. At least for now. You lay down inside a bit and look through one of the many holes in what you suppose you'd call a roof. How does the sky manifest its vast indifference as you stare at it? Now that I actually look at it, through the branches and the the debris of my shelter and then looking up past the trees, I realise now that the trees don't have... Well, certainly here, they don't have the canopy that's all inclusive. They just sort of reach up like spindly spikes. And I can see... I can see stars. So faint. They must be shining so bright, because I can still see them. The silhouettes of the spindly trees are blocking certain parts out of it, so... creates almost a weird image tall columns rising to the sky, ending in points. And I realise that those stars are so far away. So many of them, yet they're so far apart from each other and from here. And it's unfathomable how big a star can be when they look so small from here. And then you think, if I think that's small, what am I compared to that? This planet, this world, this forest, 
The shelter? Tiny a speck. Less than that. And... There's nothing about it. Like before. This feeling of being small. So small and not... Not being significant. Not being important in the way things work. That's what it feels like. I'm just lying there looking up and thinking... How can the sky, with its so many infinite possibilities, just be like that? Static, stoic in a way. Now obviously static is a silly thing here, because stars move, planets move, but... (sighs) So small, so far away, so unreachable. I don't know if I'm talking about me or the stars at this point. Day five. You don't sleep, but it's better than nothing. The animal that was screaming earlier has gone away, and you find that you almost miss it. Yet you now feel more alone than you did before. You decide to explore around the swamp to see if you can find a stream going from it to follow. The terrain around you is uneven, and you have to walk carefully to avoid stumbling or hurting yourself. The strange plants that you have been examining make it hard to see where you're stepping, so your progress is slow. What do these plants look like? So as I said before, the swamp seems to go on forever. Like, I can't really find the defined edge of it. These plants are a little bit different. Like before, I said that I noticed the fungi on the trees and on the fauna and flora. Now it's getting harder to tell the difference between whether it's just fungi or is it growing on something. It seems to be like everywhere. Like when I put my foot down, not only does the water and the mud and the dirt slosh over my shoes, but also I just, when I raise up my foot, it's just kind of hard. Not because it's sticking down, like something's sucking it down, but just there's so much in the way. This fungus, as I've said, it's almost multicolored, like, but not like in a rainbow way, not in like a what you'd assume as a positive way. It feels menacing. I don't think that's true, but there's definitely lots more greens and purples that you wouldn't expect to see on fungus. As I continue my journey around the swamp, I'm seeing more and more open-capped fungus. Again, seeing the the gills underneath, wide and fat with spores. I'm trying so hard not to disturb them because I have this weird fear that they might just release a ton of spores and for whatever reason, I really, really feel that 
I don't want that to happen. But I've got to continue on. I've got to try, try and find a stream. I've got to, got to keep going, you know? After a few hours of wandering, you find a large boulder in the muck. As you examine it, you find carvings in it, though you're not able to make any sense of them. It seems, though, that these carvings are deliberate. What do these carvings look like? What makes you so sure that they're deliberate? Even though I'm trying to find the edge of the swamp, I don't see the boulder till I'm almost right on top of it. I can't remember how long I've been walking around for, so it's kind of worrying that I didn't notice this. I feel like I'm losing... losing the passage of time a little bit. I stopped to rest by this boulder. It's about as big as me and twice as wide all the way round. I sort of lean back on it, catching my breath. Going through all this muck and through the fungus... It's been slow work and I'm tired. But my hand brushes against something and I look. And that's when I see the carvings on the other side of the rock. Like, it wasn't on the side I was heading towards. It's on the other side where I'm stopped. The carvings look like... Well, they look crude. They've clearly been done with some sort of sharp implement... Um, I mean, I'm no archaeologist or sociologist, but they've been here for a little while. I can see where the carving has dug into the boulder's skin. Little bits of moss have started to grow. Maybe the old one or two uh, fungus as well. They look like letters. Like letters of an alphabet. Almost like graffiti in a way. The way it's sort of splayed out, like there's it's like broken up parts of a sentence. But it's gibberish. Like I've never seen these symbols before. There's maybe like three symbols at the top and then off at an angle, another two, and then back into it, there's like almost like as if someone's forgotten a symbol and tried to put it in. I've never seen anything like it. I'm just trying to think. I, I mean, maybe it's another language. Maybe it's uh, Mandarin, perhaps. Again, I've, I was never any good at languages. But it's clearly as if someone's written something here, and written quite a lot. I don't recognise any of the symbols at all. Again, thinking of kids and their sort of slang. I can't see any emojis or... Any cultural things, perhaps, like hearts or crosses? It feels like a complete alien language has been put on this stone. Why do I think it's deliberate? I mean, it's hard to say it's not deliberate. It's... Ugh, I can make out there is something there. It's not just random scratches from... Well, I don't know what, but... I... Hmm... Again, looking at these symbols, these, these bits of glyphs, perhaps, they're quite high above me, so whoever was scratching this in either was sat on top of the boulder or has a very long arm reach, and if that's... I'm hoping it was done by someone and not something. 
Because otherwise that would mean whatever it is is much taller than me and has a bigger reach than me as well. <sighs> but I'm trying to keep calm, but it's a sign that possibly somebody else was here before me. So I feel a little bit of relief that I'm not on my own. But then I think these markings have been here for some time. Did this person get out? You've learnt to judge the degrees of darkness here. It never gets any brighter than twilight, but there are certainly darker times too. Your limbs, mired in the wet muck of this place, have sucked and popped at you as you stepped through it. You make it back to your shelter, just as total darkness falls. As you lie in your shelter, and complete darkness sets in. As you lie in your shelter, and complete darkness sets in. What strange images filter through your head? They can't really be there. Can they? Oh, gosh, I'm tired. I just feel constantly damp now. Like the air is damp. I figure for a second that maybe I should take off my shoes to get the water out, but I kind of go against that idea. Whilst the ground my shelter is on is safe for now, but what if I need to leave? And that's kind of what I think throughout this whole night, staying up, thinking over and over, thinking about that creature, that bird-like, sphinx-like, bat-like entity wondering where it's gone. Did it get out? Did I imagine that? I think back to the boulder. I think about the scratches, trying to puzzle in my head what it could possibly mean, even though I know I have no idea what those glyphs said. I start trying to imagine who or what created those glyphs on the boulder. Whilst I'm trying to keep positive and think that there's someone here that could help me, other thoughts come in. And I picture a figure, long, tall arms, claws for fingers, making their way through the swamp towards me. When I try and get rid of that image, they disappear, but then only for a second as they've gone underwater. And like a crocodile or an alligator, I can just see a head poke up out of the water, eyes, far too many eyes, looking out towards my shelter, blinking. I turn away. I turn away, trying to almost like shake that image out of my head. Whoever made those glyphs has long gone. And whether or not they could help me, that's... I can't ever know that just now. I also wonder how long I've been down here. In this place I have never been before. I've lost complete track of time. All I know is that it's dark now, and at some point it will be slightly lighter again. I wonder if anyone misses me. Or if anyone knows I've gone. I didn't tell anyone I was coming out here to check on stuff. I just did it as part of my normal routine. I think briefly of Imogen and Abigail. 
I think about the last thing I said to Imogen, shouting at them for them trying to help. Now that I think about it, I was too... I shouldn't have blown up like that. I mean, it's not worth it. They were trying to help, however they saw to help. I should have been more patient, more kind with them. And Abigail and I are civil. Like I said, we don't see eye to eye on everything, but we can at least have a meal together. I think once I'm out of here, first thing I'm going to do is have that dinner with them. And just be civil. Do it for Imogen. It's not about me. It's about them. Will Catherine ever be able to find her way back home? Find out next time on What Am I Rolling? The What Am I Rolling podcast was created, recorded, and edited by me, Fiona Howard. This episode's player was Fiona Howard. This episode's RPG was Below, a 10-day solo journaling game by Doug Lewandowski. You can find out more information about Below and buy other Doug Lewandowski games on Ichiko. The theme music was 8-Bit March by Twin Musicon of twinmusicon.org, licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 license. If you want to find out more about the podcast, check out the website. That's www.wairpodcast.com. Fancy getting in touch? Email the podcast at whatamirollingpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at wair underscore podcast for latest news on upcoming episodes. And remember... Adventurers need not apply.